HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $194 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. If you want to know more about membership, visit specialtyfood.com. While on the site, check out the new Maker Prep course, a 12-step online program that will teach you how to take your specialty food product to the next level. In each podcast episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping to shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, George Hajar, Associate Editor at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. We are joined today by our guests, co-founders Marilyn Yang and Michael Casali of Papadelics, an on-trend vegan crunchy shiitake mushroom chip that comes in a variety of flavors, including trip and truffle parm, twisted Thai chili, and rad rosemary and salt. The brand is on a mission to bring support to the underloved veggies. Welcome. We're so excited to have you both on the show. Yeah, thanks again, George. Super excited to be here. And actually, Specialty Food Association holds a special place in our heart, I think, being based in New York, but also then it being our first trade show back in the day. Mm-hmm. Great. So uh, let's dive right into it. Can you tell us a bit about the brand and how it started? Yeah, so I feel like it was, um, I, I guess, like many other founders during this era, it was very much so our COVID baby. So mm-hmm. um, Mike and I were, were husband and wife, and we've always wanted to start something together, some company together, and just never settled on the right idea quite before Papadelics. And how it came about was very much so, a, I feel like, a COVID story where mm-hmm. we were kind of stuck in our New York City apartments um, sick and tired of eating the same old snacks that we kind of already had um, in our apartment. And we're lifelong mushroom lovers and already started to see all the other mushroom products come out. So we started to see all the mushroom coffees and teas. And so it really just came up organically where we figured, oh, well, you know, there has to be a mushroom chip out there. Or Mm -hmm. so we thought, because then we went out and really we were just consumers who were interested in buying a mushroom chip and 
when we went out to try to find some, really didn't find anything out there. I mean, the stuff that is out there is unbranded, unflavored, unexciting. Um, a lot of it's really meant for cooking. So it's not mm-hmm. really a, a, in snack, proper snack form anyway. And um, the actual mushroom chips that are out there are for the most part foreign imports. So they didn't necessarily have the taste profiles or kind of the branding that we were aesthetic that we were looking for as millennials ourselves and Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um that really kind of got the creative wheels turning for us in those kind of early moments where i I think at first it was just us as disappointed consumers but i think in the backdrop of already seeing all these other mushroom products we were kind of surprised that this didn't exist yet and i I think that we really kind of saw that white space and that kind of escalated from there as you can imagine Mm -hmm. um neither of us are from the food industry and initially we're we're both from finance backgrounds so we do have maybe some general understanding of you know maybe food distribution or or things like that but um it really was kind of a fully out there very new endeavor when we went about it Mm -hmm. and how is that process sort of getting into it from a completely different place like finance (laughs) i feel like it was uh, there's pros and cons to it because i feel like um so i'm I'm from a private equity background so Mm -hmm. i've seen much bigger companies and how they operate not necessarily in the food space And I I feel like we at least knew at a high level, at least academically, I guess, in some ways, like what you should Mm -hmm. do. So, you know, almost right away, we knew we had to get like business insurance and we had to incorporate. And I feel like a lot of the nitty gritty kind of Mm -hmm. paperwork, boring things we we kind of just knew we had to do. But I think it was when it really came down to the specifics of how the food industry works. And I I think in particular, like we're we're not even really cooks, you know, Mm -hmm. living in New York Mm -hmm. City, we're, we're just foodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think just even getting our product made, right. I think that was definitely number one hurdle for sure. But at least we had, I think it, it was helpful, I think, to have some basic understanding of what a business should eventually look like. But mm-hmm. again, in those early days, I, I feel like in some ways it, it wasn't even that helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But definitely the getting your sort of all of your bases covered before you begin was, was a, a great way to start. I know there's a lot of businesses that come in with the passion and then they get bogged down by the, uh, the nitty gritties that you were referring to before. So it was great to have that, that background before. Um, so yeah, what is your, what's your favorite products that you, that you guys, uh, do? Yeah, so we really only make three products so far. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I feel like they're like my children. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. even know. We, I'm allowed to have a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish we were more scientific about it. But what, uh, how we came up with the flavors of our crunchy mushroom chip were really that they were our favorite personal flavors, you know, mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. personal favorite taste profiles. Again, we're not really cooks per se, but we definitely like to eat. So we kind of know what we like and don't like. And these were all flavors that in some form, in some dish, maybe associated with mushrooms that we really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And um, same thing with even when we settled on the type of mushroom we used. So we used shiitake mushrooms. Um, there's obviously a lot of health benefits to shiitake mushrooms, a lot of reasons why you would want to proactively use them. But mm-hmm. even more than that, it was um, more simple than that was how we ended up on it. It was really as simple as it tasted the best. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when made in, into a chip form, at least. Uh, which yeah. is interesting because even me as a mushroom lover, shiitakes weren't necessarily my my go-to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but made in this form, um, they really beat out every other type of mushroom that we tried anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. And all three mm-hmm. of our flavors are very different from each other, as you outlined earlier. Um, trip and truffle parm is our most popular. Um, but I, I would say only by a pretty slim margin. They're all pretty even and actually very much so depends on the person. And so I, I think... We're doing something right if there's at least something for everyone, which is kind of our goal. 
Oh, that's great. And any sort of, are, is there any recipes in the hopper? Is there any new flavors we can expect soon? You don't have to talk about specifics, but yeah, in general. Yeah, we definitely want to come out with more flavors. I think mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have been clamoring for a sweet flavor. All three of our flavors right now are savory. Mm -hmm. I think with the crunch texture, there, there's a lot of interesting angles that we could go with some more sweet type of profile. So um, that, that could be something we explore down the road. Um, and maybe more broadly, as you mentioned, with our company generally. So we have a corporate entity, Fungal Snacks. Mm -hmm. our, our goal there is to come out with ultimately a family of brands, each featuring an underloved veggie. Uh, mm -hmm. So kind of like mushrooms, right? There's a lot of other vegetables or even fruits or other type of food inputs that haven't really been made into a snack yet. And we feel like they're underloved because in the snack aisle, it's a lot of corn and maybe potatoes. And there's definitely more to life than corn and potatoes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With bringing more support for a diverse range of foods, it also sort of diversifies the the top 10 crops that we see at the grocery store every day. It's a sort of like a turn away from monocultures and things like that. So there's a lot of implications for the entire planet. I always say, I, I find that a very interesting concept. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so you talked before about like the products that were on the market before, the white space that you were filling, they sort of had it, but it was focused on on the cooking aspect and it wasn't necessarily for enjoying the mushroom as a chip. Um, and along with, with Papadelics, you have this branding that's uh, so vibrant, it's so inviting, and it sort of leans into the, the concept of the magic mushroom a little bit. Can you talk about how, how the branding came to be? Sure, yeah. And I, I wish we could take full credit for it, but we did mm. use an amazing uh, marketing and branding agency called Fresh Made. They're actually a boutique out of Florida. So huge shout out to them and their team who mm -hmm. worked with us when it really was very much little more than just an idea. So they mm -hmm. re they really helped us bring the the brand to life. And it definitely was a collaborative process with them. Um, I think what was interesting was that we ulti ultimately ended up mashing together two different ideas we had for the brand initially from a kind of creative and visual standpoint, it ended up where we are today. And I think it uh, was ultimately, it came out to be exactly like probably how we envisioned it. We just couldn't have articulated it at the time mm -hmm. when we first thought of it. Um, but I think part of it was we wanted to make mushrooms kind of interesting, even to people who didn't necessarily already like mushrooms. Mm -hmm. So a lot mm -hmm. of the other mushroom-based products out there um, it's a lot of earthy tones, you know, looks like, you know, something you maybe take to go on a hike or something, but you look at it and you immediately know that there's mushrooms in it. And if you don't like mushrooms from a culinary standpoint, then you're probably going to stay away. And I mm -hmm. think we wanted to avoid that. We really wanted something that appealed visually just to not only mushroom lovers, but also mushroom doubters as well. Mm -hmm. And we thought a fun way to be able to do that was to kind of lean in a little bit into kind of the, you know, the pop of fun and the pop of color, but also maybe allude to the fact that, you know, when people think or say mushrooms, you might think of the psychedelic kind. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, uh, maybe funny, uh, I'll slip in a funny anecdote. We, we've done actually events where some people actually don't realize that mushrooms can be culinary and not the psychedelic <laughs> oh wow <laughs> maybe you're supposed to show that i think a lot of people aren't aren't just aren't familiar with mushrooms broadly in cuisine quite yet mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of um i think a lot more room for us to grow as a product but also for mushrooms to penetrate um just everyone's everyday diets mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again at the at the core we, we definitely wanted to nod to that um not only to get people interested when looking at it visually and maybe to you know for a lot of people right they probably get the joke a little bit 
um, kind of an inside joke, but also Mm -hmm. we do support as part of our brand, we want to make all mushrooms mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so that does include psilocybin as well. And so we do Mm -hmm. actually support through our charitable foundation, uh, Fungal Snacks Foundation, uh, research into this space. So namely, Johns Hopkins has been a pioneer in that space as well. Um, But that was definitely important for us to have some sort of social impact angle as well uh, with Mm -hmm. the product and with the brand. Um, So it kind of all ties together, but at the end of the day, it really is to look visually appealing and interesting enough, even for non-mushroom lovers, to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I'm so happy you mentioned uh, the Fungal Snacks Foundation and the work with Johns Hopkins. Uh, Yeah, like the I was really interested in sort of that focus on the health and wellness side of um, of like tapping into mushrooms in its in many different forms. Um, Yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you so much. So shifting gears a little bit, the company is 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 relatively young, but it's already seen so much success. I know like around New York City, it's available in almost every specialty market I've been to recently. And I feel like I've even seen it in like not specifically specialty food markets like clothing stores like uh, Urban Outfitters and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about your like go-to-market strategy and what has really helped you to expand so rapidly? Yeah, I feel like uh, actually speaking of Urban Outfitters, that was actually what I would say a lucky break, but I'll maybe explain a little bit more about that later Mm -hmm. Um, uh, from a connection that we actually made at Summer Fancy Food Show. Oh, wow. um, Actually, that that was a uh, a great uh, kind of not in some ways unexpected, I think, breakthrough that we had very early on. So we launched our product in April of 2022. Mm -hmm. And then it was June of 2022 that we then went to Summer Fancy Food Show. Uh, where we made that connection with Urban Outfitters, but also some other retailers at the shows. We we initially met with Foxtrot there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where um, some other retailers that we're now in had first found us. Um, and I, I think part of what we were doing in the beginning was uh, we were targeting the independent stores in particular. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in some ways we were essentially just trying to get in where we could get in without a distributor at the time. We weren't with a major food distributor quite yet at the time. And part of that was because we were still learning the industry. Mm-hmm. And so the reason we ended up in the early days getting into a lot of maybe non-traditional type retailers are because a lot of those non-traditional channels actually don't require brands to necessarily go through distribution in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so Urban Outfitters, uh, as you can imagine, right, they sell a lot of clothing and maybe beauty products. And most of those types of products are distributed directly from the brand to the retailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were just maybe as a company set up more kind of easily to take on a brand like us who wasn't necessarily with any you know food distributor yet. And, and so part of it wasn't necessarily on purpose. It was just kind of where the interest came from, where practically we could actually service those customers at the time. But I think more broadly, right, I, I think we we really, maybe not coming from the industry specifically, we, we saw the opportunity for our product to not just be in the obvious places. Um, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a pretty uh, good product for any place where there could be an impulse buy. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think at Urban Outfitters, right, they would put us kind of right at the checkout uh, line, essentially. And so a lot of gift shops we've seen um, ended up buying our products as well. Um, I think actually some, interestingly, some museums as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so some museums that maybe have a, maybe a natural history element to them or, um, that sort of thing. And so I, I think it really does lend itself to being in more places than just grocery stores. And so I feel like grocery stores are definitely low hanging fruit for us or, and our maybe our primary low hanging fruit targets 
at least in the near term. But I think longer term, we, we see a lot of opportunity with other types of channels as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you recommend that others seek out this, these, these alternate channels? I think for the right brand, for sure. I, I think especially mm-hmm. if it's a type of product or a brand um, that has a specific type of visual appeal like ours, I, I feel like a lot of boutiques or stores maybe you know will carry a product because it fits in with the aesthetic of whatever clothes or products they're selling as well, visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, especially if it's uh, a newer brand with kind of that, um, I would almost say like Gen Z millennial appeal, yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting channels specifically in that maybe age and lifestyle demographic, mm-hmm. um, that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily just grocery stores as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a bit more brand and product dependent, but, um, but for sure, I, I feel like there's a lot of product types that, in some ways, probably even can do better in non-grocery channels, even if they're a food product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really insightful. Thank you. Um, so yeah, as two young entrepreneurs, um, what skills do you feel were key to help grow your business, um, especially coming from a place where you didn't really know much about the industry beforehand? I think it was like a lot of it for me, at least, was starting out just kind of the general business concepts, I guess. So I mm-hmm. think um, what, where we, uh, at least benefited from our finance backgrounds is that we immediately started our product and were looking at our brand from a, essentially a unit economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's really helped us as we continue to grow and scale because we, um, were, we, we kind of did a lot of that work up front to essentially run the scenarios to see, you know, what would it take for us to get to a profitable place um, and we have a pretty strong sense of, you know, our unit volumes needed to be able to, for example, get to a place where we're generally cash flow break even. And mm-hmm. so we kind of had a, a good sense of that pretty early on. I mean, it doesn't make actually doing it any easier, but at least I, I think we had a very clear picture of where we needed to get to to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And along your sort of path towards profitability, um, is there any sort of challenges that you had to overcome? And what was that process like? Yeah, so I'll, may- I'll maybe start and then Mike can jump in. I feel like I've been hogging the conversation here. But, <laughs> um, I-, I think number one, what was surprised us not coming from the industry was just the how long decisions can take in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure every industry has its own pace of business. But I, I think at least from the biz- other industries I'd been exposed to is a much shorter sales cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think it is maybe for some of the smaller stores, but I think we've been surprised at how long um, some of the processes are for some of the bigger chains, for example. Um, and part of that is just because, you know, we, we get it right. They're, they're only resetting a certain category every year, sometimes every two years. And so you just have to wait for your window, essentially. But mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think we expected that to be so across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would... Uh add to that too yeah just how broad the landscape is with um you know the distributor world where the you know connections may lie within um you know each market each region each subsect um that was something that we thought would be much more i think straightforward or at least logically straightforward where um you know it it was something that just took a learning process where oh you know (laughs) these types of stores tend to have you know relationships with these distributors or you know Mm -hmm. they also work with these so just i think understanding that and you know feeling comfortable enough to decide to go into distribution was another part 
Yeah, it's definitely a um, interesting part of the business and understanding how grocery stores operate is uh, a little bit impenetrable when looking at it from the outside. So you sort of have to get into the nitty gritties to understand. Um, how do you feel the brand has evolved since uh, you began in April of 2022? I don't know if the core brand has changed too much. If anything, mm-hmm. I think it's maybe found its own a little bit. I, I think we really appreciate seeing people who really get it, <laughs> get what mm-hmm. we're trying to do, really enjoy the product. But I think what maybe um, maybe going a different direction, I, I think what surprised us is we, we are clearly going after a certain visual demographic with our branding and you know some of our messaging and some of our social media content, for example. Mm-hmm. But I think in practice, the, the people that are interested in our snacks and are actually buying our snacks and are fans of our snacks are much more than what maybe uh, visually people might think. So um, I think from a visual and branding perspective, we're probably targeting people who are like me and Mike, right? We're targeting maybe young urban millennials, maybe Gen Z, um, just from kind of the marketing branding and some of the cultural events that we're a part of. Mm. Uh, But what we've seen is that our product actually does quite well in more rural regions of the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also does have a lot of customers that are kind of in that 40 to 60 plus range mm-hmm, uh, or mm-hmm. even older as well. And even parents uh, feeding it to their kids. We, we've done a lot of demos where a lot of parents will rave like, oh, I well, my kids hate mushrooms, but they love these snacks. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's really because at the core, although, you know, we are targeting a certain demographic from a branding and marketing standpoint, the product itself is really meant for, I would say we're transcending or how we were thinking about it from the beginning is that it transcends essentially the stereotypical, what people think of when it comes to demographics, right? It's kind of beyond age, beyond gender, beyond geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really more so a mindset that we're trying to target and attract. And I would say it's uh, as simple as, people who are health conscious, who want to be adventurous with their food. So um, at the end of the day, that's who our snacks are meant for and who we're, we're targeting maybe more broadly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And yeah, I was talking actually recently with a broker who is who was telling me not to sleep on the Midwest because the Midwest actually has a lot of um, interest, especially in conventional grocery stores for specialty products like this, and especially better, better for you products. Um, yeah. So what's on the horizon for the company? Yeah, a lot of big things, I hope. Um, so <laughs> well, actually I don't want to jinx anything, so I'm not maybe going to go too in detail here, but, mm-hmm. um, we, we do have a few, uh, big launches, uh, fingers crossed that we're planning for. Uh, we're in some discussions with some big retailers as well. I, I think we've been able to build a very strong base with the independent natural food channel and also kind of some of these non-traditional channels as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So we do have over 600 stores that carry our products today. Uh, But what we're, what really our next step is, is getting into some of those larger chains. So call it hundred plus location chains. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we have a few on the horizon that, um, you know, fingers crossed we'll, we'll be able to, to announce publicly quite soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amazing. I'm staying tuned. I'm, uh, yeah, that's so exciting. Um, is there anything you want people to know about Papadelics that they might not already know? I know we've already covered so many things, so yeah, it's okay if there isn't anything, but yeah, just wanted to, to give you that, that platform. 
Yeah, I'll just mention too, um, just a little bit more about what we do with our foundation as well is mm-hmm. um, I, I am Chinese American. So we do partner in New York City with a few of the Chinatown organizations. So we've done a few events with Welcome to Chinatown. Um, we've also uh, partnered with uh, St. Jude's for part of their Lunar New Year campaign. Um, and also we've recently been a partner with Welfare, which distributes essentially better for you snack products and pantry products to low income neighborhoods in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so just wanted to uh, mention a few of the other uh, organizations that we've been fortunate to partner with, uh, with both our product and in general. But I think part of what weaves all of the things together that we support is that it's really trying to encourage and further health and wellness in all aspects. So kind of mind, body, soul, so to speak. So, um, you know, making food more accessible, um, healthier food for all, uh, and also of course, um, you know, mental health. Mm-hmm. It's great. And it's so, it's so inspiring to see that ethos so strongly, um, presented in your brand, uh, at every sort of layer of it. So yeah, that's great. Um, so we're almost out of time, but before you go, we'd like you to participate in our final segment, take five, five questions for our guests. First, let's pause for a break. Welcome back. I'm George Hajar of SFA, speaking with Marilyn and Michael of Papadelics. Okay, here are your five questions for a final segment. Take five. One, what is your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? I think probably how nice everyone is. I think coming from an industry where maybe there's a lot of not nice people, it's kind of nice to see an industry where people are a lot more open. What is one thing that the SFA has made easier for you as a specialty food business owner? I would say, yeah, the uh, Summer Fancy Food Show, as Marilyn mentioned earlier, is really, I think, um, by far exceeded our expectations of not just our first trade show, but just how it brings together virtually every uh, corner of the industry. And particularly, that that sounds simple, but in specialty <laughs> niche areas, I think, you know, is... Uh, really powerful. So using that Urban Outfitters example, um, you know, for us to be connected in our first trade show with someone like that on the other side of the the, the world in terms of uh, industry fit, I think was um, not what we would have expected. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't running a business, what would you be doing? For me, probably working out. <laughs> I feel like mm-hmm. that's, all, that's all else I, I, I really do these days, I feel like. But I, I'm a big fan of uh, group fitness classes. So mm-hmm. um, you'll probably see me at some sort of kickboxing studio. Mm. What's one piece of advice you'd give a new food business? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. We, we chat about this a lot. I think um, just from a general founder perspective, we think that the the food startup world is something that, you know, definitely has a lot of potential and there's going to be a lot of innovation in. So I think, um, you know, we would just encourage founders, people who are even in their, you know, current day jobs to, you know, just take the plunge and give it a shot. Um, it's surprisingly not easy, but there's a lot of resources available and it's, I think, easier in terms of just getting off the ground um, these days than it probably ever was. 
That's great. Yeah, that's so inspiring. All right, so this one might be a little bit tricky. How do you define specialty food? Yeah, that actually is a tricky one. I think when I think of specialty food, I almost think of like, you, you know, in those, uh, the, the kind of like the wooden shelves section of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So where uh, I think traditionally it's been a lot of those like exotic spices and um, maybe the super high end versions of things. Um, but I, I think in more recent times, it's kind of evolved to just include everything that's essentially maybe not a necessarily a big box brand or kind of mm. a new take on something uh, that's maybe otherwise thought of as being very kind of commodity. Mm-hmm. A big thanks to Marilyn Yang and Mike Casali for joining us today. And you can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.